This is Dr. Sean Canone, and welcome again to the podcast. We're going to continue our conversation from last time, looking at medical legal aspects to practice in long-term care, post-acute care settings. And this week, specifically, we're going to look at how to identify and manage challenging patients or families. If you recall from our conversation last time, most long-term care litigation is in the form of wrongful death lawsuits which means the patient is not the one bringing the legal action. It's generally the spouse or, more commonly, the children. Most of us are very aware that our patients are very high medical complexity. Many are nearing end of life. And sometimes the patient themselves or their families can be very challenging, very demanding, having unrealistic expectations about their care and prognosis. And so we've talked about this in the last episode, and this week we're going to talk more practically about identifying and managing those types of patients and families. Now, our conversation today will not be comprehensive in nature, but we're going to focus on just a few very practical tips for identifying and managing high-risk patients and families. So how do we recognize high-risk patients? And when I talk about high-risk here, I'm not talking about clinical complexity or high clinical risk. I'm talking about medical legal risk. The first thing is that these patients tend to be very dependent on family members, sometimes over-dependent. And that can really put a lot of strain on those relationships and create a lot of guilt on the part of the family members as things start to deteriorate with their loved one's health. Sometimes this over-dependence on family members is the result of a dominating relationship with that patient, whether it's a child or a spouse, they may be very controlling of the situation and place very high demands on the medical community and fuel some of those unrealistic expectations. Now, obviously, we want to encourage families, spouses, children to be involved in the conversation, to be involved in the decision-making process. It's a healthy thing to give support to their loved one. But what I'm talking about here is really an over-dependence of the patient on family members that can really lead to strained relationships. Another red flag for a high-risk patient from a litigation standpoint is that they are very dissatisfied with the environment. Specifically, they have trouble finding the right room or the right roommate. So some of our buildings still are semi-private, and this would be the kind of patient who just cannot find someone to be compatible with in the room, constantly complaining, constantly changing rooms, And while we know it's not an easy thing to adjust to a new environment, you can kind of sense that someone's just not a right fit for this environment or there's nothing that's going to make them or their family happy. And that obviously is a sign that when things do start to decline health-wise in the future, that there may be discontent that way as well. Another very practical thing to watch out for with regard to high-risk patients is that they tend to not be interested in group activities and you encourage them to get out, to socialize, but instead they become even more antisocial. Ultimately, these things are representative of being dissatisfied with the environment, being upset about the position that they find themselves in life, and these things tend to overflow then into the spouse, into the children, and they start to develop very negative perceptions of the environment. So what do you do when you find this kind of a patient. And again, remember, we're not talking so much clinically today. We're talking more about just navigating difficult patients, patients who just are not satisfied in the environment that they're in. The first thing is to think about the use of a licensed clinical social worker or a psychologist. 
to begin working through the emotional, psychosocial support that might be necessary to help this patient and to start the process of investigating the possibility of a mood or personality disorder that might need to be escalated to a psychiatrist at some point. It's also important to think about confronting or addressing these issues with patients or families as a team rather than individually. So get the director of nursing, the administrator, the medical director, the consultant pharmacist, the social worker, the dietitian, the therapist, anyone who touches this patient and has some role to play in the overall care and well-being of the patient. It's good to have a team approach to the situation. When you're really seeing red flags and the situation is looking like it's heading the wrong direction, it's very important to get someone in high authority involved. Specifically, the administrator of the facility might need to be the person that you turn to. Remember that it's very appropriate and actually in some circumstances required that you offer other options to patients who are dissatisfied with that particular setting. You can offer them maybe three other nursing home options in the area of their choice, help to arrange transportation or visitation of those facilities, but in the end, if they're unhappy with the environment and you cannot seem to satisfy them in any way, you have to start looking that direction. Finally, when it comes to documentation of our interaction with high-risk patients, it's very important to understand you have two possible ways that documentation can occur in a nursing home. One is in the medical record itself, and here we can document our interactions with the patient, the types of things that we're suggesting or recommending, their responses to those things, as well as interactions with family members. But remember that we need to just be cautious about the types of things that are documented in the medical record. If it really doesn't contribute to patient care, then it really doesn't belong in the medical record. We obviously want to be very careful about documenting anything that could be construed as negative or condemning or derogatory toward the patient, the family, or the facility. And this brings us to the second form of documentation in a nursing home setting, and that is documentation that occurs within the quality assurance realm. And so there are some types of things that we may want to take back to the director of nursing, to the medical director, and bring into a quality assurance process at the facility. There you can strategize and you can brainstorm and think together as a team about how you want to address a particular situation, but not necessarily have all of that information sitting in the medical record. So let's turn our attention now to the high-risk family. What are the red flags? What are the warning signs? How do we identify the high-risk family? One thing is that oftentimes there's suspicion triggered at the admission interviews. The first time that you meet a family whether it's at the bedside or over the phone, sometimes the first time the facility meets the family, there's suspicion. You just get a sense that the expectations are going to be very high, maybe unrealistically high, especially if the patient's been bouncing from one facility to another and there's been dissatisfaction all along the way. Second, we have to have a little bit higher index of suspicion for out-of-state family members, those who really want to stay involved, which is a very good thing. But when they're at a great geographic distance, sometimes uh, that becomes a very difficult situation to navigate when they're very demanding or have a high expectations but are not physically present to see the situation, to interact with their loved one in person, and to have sit-down conversations with us. 
In these types of situations, there may be ways to use the durable power of attorney or the primary responsible party as a point person to funnel all communication through. And with technology, there may be ways to bring them into meetings virtually. So you can actually make face-to-face contact and help them to see the patient themselves if the patient's open to that so that they can kind of get a feel for what you're seeing on the ground. Another red flag is families who have no interest at all in plan of care conferences. So you know that the facility staff generally arranges these things and encourages participation in plan of care meetings. And sometimes families are, are not interested in being involved in those types of settings. And, and the reason that becomes a red flag is that you have to assume at that point that they're not engaged with the patient's care on a day-to-day basis or not interested in hearing from the greater interdisciplinary team about the condition of their loved one and that they probably don't have a good grasp of what's going on clinically on a day-to-day basis. So when things do start to deteriorate, they are slightly out of the loop and may respond adversely at that point. Finally, on the other end of the spectrum is the family member who's extremely obsessed and involved in the patient's care. Their involvement actually becomes unhealthy in certain ways. And if you've practiced for any period of time, I'm sure you've come across this kind of a family or a responsible party. And I think their intentions are good. They mean well, but sometimes that gets pushed to the extreme and really creates an uncomfortable environment to care for a patient. These are the kinds of families or responsible parties that tend to not be satisfied with anything that we do. And when the patient has a bad outcome, when clinical condition deteriorates, they generally don't respond well. And these are the kinds of family members who will sometimes overturn a patient's wishes or advance directives because of their over-involvement in patient care and their desire to control the situation. So what are some practical ways that we can manage this kind of a high-risk family member? First, we got to work through the main family member. As I mentioned just a moment ago, find a point person who you can funnel communication through, who can be a spokesperson for the family, and try not to interact with a lot of different members of the family because they all hear conversations differently from you, and that ends up becoming a very difficult uh, web to untangle. Next, always deal with unrealistic expectations. This was the focus of our last podcast, and really we have to be constantly talking about prognosis, expected clinical course, and when you feel the unrealistic expectations coming back on you or just an, an obvious sense that they don't understand where things are heading or they're in denial that way, we have to continually reinforce and communicate what we're seeing from a clinical standpoint. A third thing to consider is patient hygiene. Pay special attention to their hygiene. So when you're in the room evaluating or talking with the patient socially, make sure that their teeth are being brushed, that their linens are being changed, that they're in dry clothing, that they're being shaved. These are the kinds of things that rightfully upset families and can eventually lead to a perception that the care is not good in a facility and fuel that possibility for litigation down the road when there's a clinical decompensation. Next, make sure that all advanced directives are clear and are present on the chart. This is really important that we know that they exist and that they are available to our staff 
in times of emergency. It's also important to use those advanced directives to fuel conversations with the patient when they can and with the responsible party or family members prior to a patient's clinical decompensation. We want everybody to know what's going to happen, what the steps are going to be when a patient does have a clinical decline down the road. So there's nobody caught off guard and there's no surprises. And as we mentioned in the high-risk patient section, it's always appropriate to offer and arrange transportation to another facility of their choice. This is a very reasonable thing to do if you sense that there's dissatisfaction with the environment. We should make those things available to them, document that we've done that, and realize that sometimes there just aren't perfect fits for a patient, for a family, in a particular facility, or with a particular provider, and that's okay, and we have to make those choices available to them. Now, as we conclude, let me just end by saying this, that we need to be very sensitive to the needs of patients and their families in this setting. When you think about what brings a patient to a nursing home, it's really not by desire. There is, at least in my experience, never been a patient who is excited to go to the nursing home or let alone live in a nursing home. I've never met a family who is excited about putting their loved one in a nursing home. It oftentimes is something they've promised their loved one they would never do. And so we have to be very sensitive to these things and know that not only is there massive clinical complexity, aging population, multiple comorbidities, lots of polypharmacy, very difficult to manage, but there are these other psychosocial things that come into play in a typical nursing home environment. On top of that, nursing homes tend to have a negative stigma in a person's mind. This has been either through past experience or from what they've heard from friends or relatives, what they've heard in the media, but they tend to come in thinking very negatively about the nursing home itself, their staff, the clinicians and providers who practice there. And when you couple that with this massive guilt that sometimes lays on top of these situations or even depression from the loss of autonomy or function or the loss of their independence, then we obviously have the risk for very dissatisfied people. It's a very difficult time of life for the patients we serve and for their families, and we always need to be mindful of that. But as we're caring for patients, it's important to always keep in mind the red flags that may come up. Don't ignore them. Make sure you involve the team at the nursing home to kind of come around the patient, come around the family, see if you can problem solve and meet those needs. And if you can't, don't be afraid to help find them another situation where maybe their desires can be met. So with that, we'll wrap up for this week and come back next time to talk a little bit more about medical legal aspects to practicing in the long-term care post-acute care setting. Have a great week.